One of the lies anxiety has is that you've lost control of yourself. That it's got you, you don't have it. It feels that way, but that's not actually true. And, and so one of the things we're trying to do is give control back to people and to kids mm. and to let them know anxiety has its own unique set of rules. Once you understand how the game's played, then you can win. We wanted to start a conversation and start a community where we would go on a mission to celebrate and to learn from designers, leaders, researchers, and thinkers who create digital experiences that matter. My name's David Whited. I'm the director of the CX practice at Highland, a digital experience agency in Chicago, Illinois. Here at Highland, we research, design, and build digital products and experiences for customer-centric companies and mission-driven organizations. I'm Mike Nowak product strategist. And I'm Carissa Shelton, lead experience designer. Welcome to Experiences That Matter. Welcome everybody to this episode of Experiences That Matter. My name is David Wyatt and I am joined by my co-host, Carissa Shelton. Uh, Mike is on vacation today, so we won't have Mike's voice uh, with us on this episode, uh, but we know he's having a really good time on vacation. Uh, Carissa, you want to say hi to everybody? Hi hey everybody! Yeah, I'm excited to <laughs> to speak with you all. I wish it could. I wish I could talk to everybody, not just a one way street podcast. But <laughs> yeah, <it's laughs> hey <true>. everyone. <laughs> so we are we're joined today uh, by Dr. David Russ. Uh, Dr. Russ is a psychologist and specializes in the area of anxiety disorders. And the reason we have him here as our guest today is because Dr. Russ has created a very powerful experience that we believe matters. The experience that he co-authored and created uh, with his partner is a program called Turnaround, a program that's specifically designed to help children with anxiety disorders. And so, uh, Dr. Russ, uh, I know you like to go by Dr. David. Uh, we're really, really glad to have you with us here on the program today. It, it really is my pleasure to do this. I, I, was, uh, I was happily surprised when you asked me. So thank you very much. Well, good. Yeah, well, we've uh, several of us have been personally impacted by uh, the turnaround program. Uh, we've used it in our families. And so, uh, yeah, so it's one of those experiences we find to be really powerful. And so we're excited to dive in and just understand how you created it today. Some of the most, honestly, the most moving moments I've had in my life is feedback we've gotten from kids and families about this program. Given my own personal experience with it, to see it impact on another kid and give them some freedom from this, there's just nothing like it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really powerful. When we think about turnaround as an experience, for those that are listening and aren't familiar with it, could you just unpack for us, like, what is the experience of turnaround actually like? So how typically do people find it and and then how do they get started with it? It, it is an audio program that it, a couple of things are very unique about it. That, that as far as we know, we kind of the first ones to do this. One, the content, the delivery is directed to children. Uh, it, uh, one of the frustrations that Dr. McCarthy and I had uh, uh, with our own kids and, and then uh, as clinician clinicians is that uh, most of the information was either directed to parents or clinicians. Interesting. 
And so the the parents, basically, if they were going to kind of help their own kid to, to some extent, that they had to sort of get trained in how to treat somebody in anxiety. That was a big ask, we thought. And in our own experience, I'm a psychologist. My kid had anxiety. Like it just it doesn't work that well. You know, uh, I used to say to him, you know, people pay me for this, right? <laughs> you know, they'd roll their eyes like whatever. You know? um, but but you don't have the objectivity. Like if my child is freaking out, I freaks me out. I mean, I don't. Yeah. It's very hard to sort of maintain objectivity. So one of the things about turnaround is is when somebody starts listening to it, literally, uh, the parents can walk out of the room. It's designed for kids. You know, we like for them to listen and participate to some extent. Uh, but they're the guest. The kid's sort of the, uh, uh, the, the client, so to speak. Yeah. So paint the picture for me, like... So, you know, parents go online, you know, parents go online, they purchase the program um, and then they download, right? They, they download a workbook or they, they have a, a workbook shipped to them. It's funny, in the course of the 10 years or so, the technology's changed so dramatically. Initially, we had it as a CD set. As the technology's changed, then uh, the delivery changed. So we switched from CDs to either a digital download or streaming or a flash drive. There's 10 audio lessons, so to speak. Another thing that's unique is we, we buried the treatment in a story. We had an editor who had a genius idea and said, because we had this sort of cobbled together, here, here's an important piece of information, here's an important piece of information. And she said to us, why don't you put it in a story, like a quest story? So we thought that is genius. But back to your original question, there's a 10-part audio series, and, but we call them days. So the, the analogy is there's 10 days in this camping trip. Okay. But there's 10 parts and there is a companion uh, journal. Even that, we, we, instead of a workbook, we put journal because that might be something you carry with you on, a, you know, on an adventure. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, each uh, day or lessons, mm, 20 to 25 minutes, you can break it into smaller parts. We know that uh, kids' attention span is relatively limited probably adults too. But anyway, um, uh, so no one talks, there's no monologues. No one speaks more than about 60 seconds at the, at the most. Uh, the, things are always changing uh, to, to keep kids' interest. There's interludes and music and breaks. There's new characters coming and going through the whole thing. Uh, so it's about 20 to 25 minutes. Uh, and then uh, you can sit and do the companion journal, uh, which basically takes elements we think are important in the audio content and lets you develop them, play some games with them, do some artwork. Yeah, that kind of yeah. thing. I know that this um, started off, sort of this whole project started off as pretty deeply personal for you. There was some pretty personal motivation there. How did it start off? I and mean, what was the original motivation for for turnaround? Well, there's two parts to the story. One part is uh, Dr. McCarthy's, but I'll, but I'll tell mine. Um, uh, it, when my daughter was 10 in elementary school, 
there was one of those uh, periods of time where the norovirus sort of, you know, just kind of runs through a school where so lots of people get sick with stomach bug. Um, and uh, she got uh, just really anxious. And um, about that, she wanted to avoid school. She was asking her, us to take her temperature. Am I okay? Uh, uh, turns out it was something called emetophobia, which I didn't even know was a thing at the time. Um, but she was having a lot of panic. And so, you know, I thought, well, I'll pull out my psychologist bag of tricks and uh, I'll help her with this. Everything I did <laughs> bounced off. I was like, mm. okay, wow, what is going on? And so during the course of this, I just remember thinking there has to be a solution to this. I'm absolutely going to figure this out. And so uh, I basically went back and started reading all the literature again. What was the, what was the time frame, David? Was this, was this like months or weeks or like four years, four years. Wow. Um, now the, the, the first year or two were really the worst. Okay. Uh, uh, but, uh, and happily, uh, yeah, she's way on the other side. I, I wish I knew then what I know now, you know, but I didn't. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, in the meantime, uh, Dr. McCarthy and I, uh, he's a colleague, we worked together, and um, uh, we met, and we were both kind of bemoaning the fact that there wasn't uh, something for kids directly that could help with anxiety. And from that conversation, uh, we thought, well, I mean, we're like, who are we? But we thought, well, let, let's do something, see if we can do something. Because both, we're both clinicians. We both are parents of kids with anxiety. And so we have a really good sense of what it's like to, in both of those, both of those roles. So, uh, we began to, we, we first uh, uh, began to draft and compile information. We went and uh, uh, looked at the cognitive behavioral therapy literature and took notes. And we did our, from our own experiences, our own practices, began to compile that, put it together. Uh, and we decided, okay, what do we want to include uh, for kids? And, and then we had the task of translating very academic language and ideas into something a seven-year-old would get. Yeah, was that, was that like the biggest challenge you faced? Um, that was really hard. And uh, Dr. McCarthy, I think, actually is a bit better at that than me. Uh, I, you know, I just would wander off here into some academic language and he'd go, nobody knows what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm curious about like what was the most difficult academic concept like to translate into children's language. I'd love to hear the story of like that of of that translation. So in the field of cognitive behavioral therapy, there's a subset of of of, of kind of treatment. Like the, there's a cognitive part and then there's the behavioral part. And in that, that behavioral part is uh, something called exposure and response prevention. For example, let's say somebody's afraid of bridges. So you can do all the cognitive work. What's the chances that the bridge might 
fall. Um, uh, is there any evidence that the bridge in, is in trouble? You know, you could get feedback from other people, uh, that kind of thing. Um, you know, the, the anxiety is always, well, this could be the one time, you know, uh, this could be the what if. I'm I'm familiar with anxiety talking in that way. Oh yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I'm I'm very familiar with that that line from anxiety. Yeah, yeah. 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 Better safe than sorry is anxiety's motto. <laughs> um, uh, so, but that that thinking may help a person get to the point to take the risk to go out on the bridge. Mm. To walk on the bridge, generally you're going to have to have some sort of sense. It's probably okay. But the only way to really disconfirm it is to go out on the bridge and to repeat that enough where the alarm finally settles down. Mm. So that's the experiential knowledge you need to get. What happens with exposure and response prevention is you have to face the fear. Generally, people like to do that gradually. I mean, nobody wants to do it, right? Because you're having to disobey your nervous system. But you gradually face the fear. And then in the course of that, you begin to sort of uh, what's called response prevention, prevention which, which just means you stop doing the things to make it safer. Mm. In the field, it's called safety behaviors. So what happens is people develop all kinds of coping things and they don't realize they're inadvertently perpetuating the anxiety. Because if you have to do something to make it safe, on some level, you still think it's a threat. And the safety behaviors work. They do make you feel better. I mean, you can avoid the bridge, but it, it just ends up confirming the fact the bridge could be dangerous. Yeah. Conveying that idea because it's the opposite of everything you biologically want to do when you're afraid, which is to escape or fight or avoid. So to convince people to go in the other direction, to actually sort of move toward the anxiety and don't do anything to make it safer is a very hard sell. So how did you, I mean, how did you all solve this for kids? Because, I mean, I've seen children, you know, uh, struggling like with profound anxiety and like there is so much emotion attached to it, right? So much resistance. I mean, just incredible resistance to to facing something and engaging something, right? So how do you do this? I mean, one, without a, a clinician in the room, right? And, with, and, and and sometimes without the parent in the room. I mean, how, how you all solve this is, is, uh, is pretty remarkable. So the first thing we did in the program is, is basically psychoeducation. Here's how your nervous system works. We renamed it. We, we personified it. The autonomic nervous system has two branches. One's sympathetic, one's parasympathetic. Who names those things? Uh, the sympathetic is the activating part of the nervous system. So we named it crank. Um, huh. And then the sort of parasympathetic is the uh, counterbalancing sort of calming part of the nervous system. And we named it chill. So we do, I feel like we do a pretty good job at, at explaining the fight or flight response because a lot of times people get afraid of that. Your heart starts to race, the, the blood vessels at the surface of your body constrict, so your skin gets numb. So this is all crank. All this, this is all crank. Is crank. And so we explained, this, uh, that's just crank doing what he's supposed to do. He's just doing it at the wrong time. So, mm. so just to remove some of the sense of threat about that, and that if, that if you feel this 
this really tremendous, strong feeling. Nothing wrong. You don't have to be afraid of it. You just have mm. to tolerate it. So we do that. Uh, the second section is where we do the more the sort of classic kind of uh, cognitive things where we talk, uh, you know, we uh, basically looking for evidence for whether something's true or not. And we have a detective that we have do that. And uh, we talk about different sort of biases, cognitive biases, the uh, dark shades where uh, when you're anxious, the things that are wrong just pop out. You don't see the good things. Catastrophic thinking that, that we talk about the intensity of emotion. We call it steamroller. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, we get, you know, give them a chance kind of to look at how they might be thinking about the problem. In the last part of the program, uh, we talk about facing the fear. Hmm. Uh, and, and hopefully by that point, we've been able to encourage some motivation and, and some hopefulness that if they can do this and persist and, and remove some of the mystery. And because if all of a sudden, just out of the blue, you have this huge anxiety re reaction, you're a kid, it's just that itself, whatever it is you're afraid of, one thing, but the reaction itself becomes scary. We compare it to so many things in life because it's not that unique. Like if, if you want to ride a bicycle, if you're a regular kid, when the training wheels come off and dad or mom lets go of the seat, you're anxious, you're scared. Mm -hmm. But if you keep doing it and you do it long enough, and even if you fall and you realize, oh, okay, well, it hurt, but I'm all right, and you get back up, you do okay. Uh, but you get where you can tolerate it. David, one of the things I keep thinking about as, as we're talking about these experiences that you've designed to help these kids navigate the, these complex things they can't always understand. In our work, we often think about and, and do a lot of work to help organizations think about jobs to be done. And this idea of, you know, we're all trying to make progress in our life in some way. In seeking that progress, there are these jobs like functional jobs, social jobs or emotional jobs. And whether it's something as simple as buying like a milkshake at McDonald's, there's like a classic example of, you know, buying a milkshake at McDonald's and it's not really about the milkshake. It's about being bored on your way to work and wanting to like be entertained and like kind of unpacking these, these jobs and these motivators of why we do the things we do, but then also um, how great experiences that matter are tapping into those jobs to be done. So, so as I'm listening to you, I just think about the really powerful ways you're helping kids feel like normal and be like, I'm, I'm okay, this is normal. And just that like identifying those things that they might need help with. We went out of our way to sort of try to normalize this. Like I would tell my daughter, it's yeah. just anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bummer, but you know, you're, going to grow up. You'll have a regular life. You'll go on with things. It's just anxiety. And it's really common. The, the, what's really interesting is biologically, uh, our, our nervous system favors learning anxiety. Like we learn that really fast yeah, and something's yeah. dangerous. If you're a little kid, you know, little kids climb, you only have to fall a couple times and you got grabbed. Like mm -hmm. gravity in any situation, any kind of circumstance, we learn it really fast. 
Um, so it is amazing to me, actually, anxiety disorders probably don't happen more often. But it's like uh, being able to process that anxiety. You yeah, know, you want to be I, able to like, you want to normalize it and, yep. and be able to go, what's it doing here? What do I do about it? Right. Mm -hmm. There's nothing happening to you that isn't exactly what's supposed to happen when the alarm system goes off. Hmm. Really getting some false alarms, just running a bit of muck, and we'll teach you how to get it back under control. That's great. I, I imagine our listeners would be wondering, like, kind of what what the content is. And one of the one of the pieces that like struck me as so powerful was the exercise where the kids actually name their anxiety, like they actually give it a name, and I think they I think they actually draw it too, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm curious, like. Tell me like where that that idea came from and like sort of the, the, the clinical thinking that's behind it. We sort of shamelessly borrowed basically 30 years of, of clinical research and practice with cognitive behavioral therapy. We, we built on that. And uh, I, I can't tell you sort of who originally sort of had the idea that externalizing uh, because in that case, then you end up, you can end up sort of having a dialogue with, with the anxiety, even though it's your own, gives you a little distance from it. So you don't, you don't feel quite as identified with it because anxiety is not who you are. It, it is, you know, it's, it's something that happens that people don't like. Naming something gives you some sense of control or authority over it, gives a sort of a shared way of describing it parents and kids to talk about. I think one of the things that the program does is develop a sort of vocabulary that everybody can share that makes sense to them. I mean, as clinicians, you created this program that really takes clinicians out of the center of this relationship. But there was some risk there, right? And, and some big questions around like, will this actually work? How do you all know that the program works? Is there any proof? Yeah, that, that was really scary to us. Uh, when we started doing this, obviously, there's lots of evidence that cognitive behavioral therapy is very effective. And for anxiety, it's, it's basically sort of the, the go-to treatment. Uh, nothing, of course, always works. But uh, translating it for kids and putting it in an adventure story with characters, we had no idea really how it would be received. Intuitively, we felt like, okay, this, this could probably work. But we really didn't know. First, we thought about maybe trying to animate it. And that would have probably been a half million dollars. And so we're like, uh, one, where in the world would we ever find that kind of money? Uh, but two, the sense of risk. We don't, we don't even know this is going to be effective or, or interesting. So we decided to do it audio so then, you know, we finally finished it. We had it. Uh, we played it for some people. My wife teared up. I thought, okay, this is a good time. She thought it was so good. Other people were getting good reactions. Like, okay, all right. We put it online, started selling it. We sold a handful. And then we started getting phenomenal feedback. Better than we hoped. Really, honestly, I'm not saying this. Like the thing just came out. I don't know how. So much better. It was beyond us. Like I, I can, I could tell you right now, uh, it didn't match sort of what I knew I could contribute. It just turned mm -hmm. out really cool. 
But I knew really uh, for people to feel confident, for us to feel like we could really go, okay, we have something. Uh, we needed uh, some, uh, a, at least one, it'd be nice if we could have had two, random controlled trials. Basically, that means you have several groups, you do a pretest, post-test. One group gets the treatment, another group is just on a wait list or some other sort of design. And we found, interestingly, in Canada and in Australia, probably other countries, but these are English speaking, the access to mental health care is limited to larger cities. And so they just were on the front lines of creating remote treatment. I contacted uh, people uh, that were doing that and uh, we got some interest in Australia and then one of the universities there um, uh, had a grad student use the program as their uh, dissertation. Uh, the results turned out to be really effective. It was about as effective as face-to-face -face treatment. Wow. And after a three and six month follow-up, the effect was still there. I mean, it was, uh, people were still, um, uh, they didn't meet the criteria for the diagnosis. Um, the, the, the student and the supervising professors liked it well enough. They uh, submitted it to a peer-reviewed journal and it got published. Is there, is there one, I know that probably there's big themes like that, you know, of course, through the feedback, but is there one particular story that's, that stands out to you as particularly meaningful? Uh, one of the first sort of feedback we got, we got this absolutely adorable letter hmm. from a young girl that just was effusive about turnaround. Uh, just, it, I mean, it, it teared me up. It was just precious. Like, yeah. And, and then we've, I mean, we've had families that have written us and said, we've tried everything. This was the thing finally where our, our, we got our kid back. Uh, that has just thrilled me so much. Yeah. It, yeah. Because I, I know what it's like. I still might cry thinking about it, but uh, I don't know, for years afterward, just thinking about my own daughter, it was so emotional. It was so hard to watch her go through this and to feel so helpless. I just remember that, that how dark that was. And then to see these families and kids write and say, we got our kid back. I just can't tell you what that's like. Well, David, it has been a real uh, pleasure to just sit with you and hear about this powerful experience that you created, uh, you and your partner created. And uh, we're really grateful for this, that this experience that really matters is, is in the world, um, helping children, helping parents get their kids back. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for Absolutely. being with us. Yeah, if somebody's interested in, if somebody's interested in, in if they've got a kid that they know that's struggling, um, yeah, where should they go to, to find the program or where should they go to check it out? Uh, our website's uh, turnaroundanxiety.com. Okay. Uh, it is available on Amazon, uh, although they charge one. So. <laughs> all right. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us today on this episode of Experiences That Matter. It's been good to be with everybody and we'll see you next time. Today's episode was hosted by me, David Whited, Mike Nowak, and Carissa Shelton. 
Editing by Daniel Santrella. Original music by Daniel Santrella and Tyler Edders. Cover art by Teresa Berg and Bridget Calling. Katie Sue Fisher does our scheduling administration. And Andreana Pacella is our beloved producer. For more information on Highland, visit our website at highlandsolutions.com or connect with us on Twitter at, at Highland Chicago.